Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Episode 56 of our show, our Joe DiMaggio episode, if you will. With the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl on Sunday, another NFL regular season and playoffs are in the books. So once all the celebrating and commiserating is done, it's on to the offseason and the NFL draft, which will be in Kansas City, coincidentally, in late April. So to talk about the NFL scouting process, both college and pro will be joined today by Roderick David, a former Falcons scout who now heads up Right Step Advising, which helps agents, athletes, and schools figure out the next right step for them and their football careers. Roderick and I will talk about the Super Bowl and how he watches games through a scout's eye, how he got into a scouting career and his path to the pros, differences between college scouting and pro scouting, how data comes into that scouting process and what's changed data-wise over the last decade, the most useful ways that data helps him as a scout, advice for data-minded people who want to work better with the scouting side, reconciling differences in data and the eye test, and a whole lot more. Then producer Sergio De La Esprilla will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with former Falcon scout Roderick David. We're joined now on Expected Value by Roderick David, founder of Right Step Advising, which will advise you on almost anything in the football world, and a former Falcon scout. Roderick, let's start. We're recording this the day after the Super Bowl, so we have to start right there. High level general reactions to the Super Bowl from you. Yeah, Paul, thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Uh, Man, fantastic game. That's exactly what the NFL wants, right down to the wire. Kept uh, everybody in it right, you know, right until what, about 10 seconds left and that final field goal was attempted and um, it was holding. Absolutely. (laughs) You got to make the call. Um, You know, there's, I I think I saw uh, somebody tweet out that, yeah, you're going to call a close off sides, a close fall start. You got to call a close holding. So that's the way the game goes. The fact that it's, you know, right there down there to the end. Um, Jalen Hurts played fantastic. Um, has continued to prove people wrong. I, I thought that was fantastic. Andy Reid continues to show he is going to be one of the great coaches in NFL, in NFL history. And uh, I, I think there's times he does not get enough credit. And um, he saw it. He did it forever in Philly and obviously now in Kansas City. But uh, really good game. Uh, just really enjoyed watching it. And I enjoyed watching the game. Forget about the halftime show and the commercials. I enjoyed the game. Yeah, it was, it was a great game. And I'll say, as a, a Dolphins fan living in Kansas, so obviously surrounded by Chiefs fans and getting to watch a lot of the Chiefs. It's just fun to watch the Chiefs offense. I mean, the Dolphins offense has been kind of eh for about two decades, but just the, I mean, it's the the creativity and the play call of, and even, you know, just little things like Greg Olson pointed out on the Kelsey touchdown. Now Kelsey, you know, just moving him inside to get him matched up with the safety or the simple motion before the snap to get the guys open on those two other touchdown passes. It's just fun, and the Eagles' offense is, has so much talent and do some different things. They're fun too. So it was, it was, I thought it was a really fun game too. Yep, really entertaining back and forth again. Exactly, exactly what you wanted. There was nobody, nobody really completely just dominated. Good players were good, and um, it was uh, the the Chiefs' offensive line answered a lot of questions, and uh, yeah, just a really fantastic game. With your scout brain. Do you watch or how do you watch the Super Bowl differently from, you know, for me, from a normal fan? How does that 
part of your brain kick in any differently watching a game? Yeah, I would say I tend to focus in on some of the micro aspects. Again, you start talking about Hassan Reddick versus Andrew Wiley uh, at the, uh, you know, as a tackle. You see, all right, who's matching up with Kelsey? Again, is he going to be a safety, a linebacker? You see, start seeing some of the zone read stuff, some of the RPO stuff, where I'm looking, uh, again, hearkening back to my pro scouting days. Uh, again, I'm just trying to pick up little things pre-snap, uh, in game situation, down in distance, that may allow me to have my eyes where I'm going to see something a little bit different um, than just the general fan who is going to be, you know, sitting back watching a good entertaining game. Um, so I just, I, I really like to, to narrow in on some of the micro stuff. Again, the trenches, I, you know, I always love O-line, D-line. I'd rather watch those two positions than anything else. And I probably tend to tend to miss some of the big stuff on the outside. Um, again, you're going to see it on your periphery, but, you know, to see how what's what's a guard versus a three-tech doing, what's the center doing, where is he kicking to when you have players like Chris Jones and Fletcher Cox inside. Um, again, seeing some of those little matchups and who's who's winning is where I really, really narrow in on. Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, your average player, not player, your average watcher, like, Someone like me, you're often just watching the ball. It sounds like your eyes are often maybe somewhere else and you almost miss what happens in the play sometimes because you're so locked in on a matchup elsewhere on the field. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's always one of the big, the big scouting adages is, you know, keep, keep your eyes off the ball. Um, obviously watching specific matchups, specific players, um, it, it all, uh, you know, watching Patrick Mahomes after he hands the ball off to see how that foot looks and, um, you know, same thing, Jalen Hurts, what's he doing away from the ball? What's uh, Travis Kelsey doing away from the ball? What's Jason Kelsey doing backside on a, on a run block? All those, all those little things that really tells you about the players that are playing the game and what level they are actually at. Because, uh, again, there's only one football and 22 players out there. So uh, you, you'll miss a lot of uh, big picture football if, you, if you're always watching the ball. So I want to talk about how you got into your career. Obviously, you can't go to college and major in scouting. Uh, it's it's something that you came to a different route. So what's the what was your route? What's kind of a normal route for someone who is into football and finds his way into that scouting world? Yeah, there is uh, no normal way into the scouting world. I'll tell you that there's probably um, you know for every for every scout out there, there's probably a fairly unique story. Um, but just about everybody, what whatever the story is, they got associated with football somehow, no matter what they were doing as a player, coach, personnel guy, um, intern. I know people that came from the ticketing world just because they wanted to be around football. For me, um, I grew up around football. My dad was a high school coach, very successful for over 30 years, small town in Colorado. And so I was always around football. I went to play at Nebraska Wesleyan University, played uh, corner safety there. And through my time at uh, Wesleyan, I started noticing I scheme, great, whatever. I understood scheme. I didn't enjoy the scheme aspect of it, though. I enjoyed narrowing in on, again, individual matchups. Hey, who, what wide receivers uh, are we going to be seeing this week? What are they doing? What are their strengths weak and weaknesses? And basically over my time there, I started you know, talking to some different people. And they were like, hey, you should think about scouting. I was going to do something in football, coaching, scouting. Again, I wasn't really uh, 
privy to a lot of the scouting background. Again, I didn't know anybody at that time that it was in scouting, but I started reaching out to some scouts from mutual contacts and it was like, hey, I, I think I really do see the world from a scouting role um, as opposed to a coaching role. So from there, um, you know, started uh, basically just, hey, what's the best next step after I get done with my undergrad? Of course, that was, again, going to grad school and uh, being around a big premier football program that had 32 plus uh, scouts, NFL scouts, CFL scouts. Uh, and for me, that ended up being Ohio State, a uh, pretty good program, have a few NFL players come through there. I knew if I could get in with a football program, I would probably rub shoulders, may, maybe shake hands at some point with somebody that would maybe uh, open that next door for me. And uh, through a lot of hard work, persistence, everything like that, it, uh, it eventually worked out. Um, Again, a couple internships, seasonal scouting things before I uh, went back and coached for a little bit at Case Western up in Cleveland before I finally uh, made it as a scouting assistant with the Falcons in uh, February of 2016. All right. So let's talk through your time with the Falcons. You said you do college, you worked on the college side and the pro side. Uh, it's somewhat self-evident, but from your inside football perspective, like what's the difference between scouting college scouting pro obviously your purposes are different but there's got to be some different way you're watching have kind of a different mindset approaching the two yeah like you said i mean pretty self-evident of course you're focusing on college as opposed to pro um the biggest change for me when i went from pro scouting to college scouting is one as a college scout you have to work extra hard to understand what nfl rosters look like and it's always important, number one, that you understand your own roster, because, uh, again, you're always trying to upgrade your own roster. But um, you quickly, quickly lose track of what teams around the NFL are doing when you are on the road focusing on, you know, six to seven hundred college athletes in your area. You're going to end up submitting maybe 300 reports um, by you know December, January. So. Um, it, it's really hard to maintain that, uh, what a pro roster looks like. And same thing on the pro side until March or April, you have really no full landscape of what the NFL draft is going to look like. You're focusing on team needs and everything, uh, through the process, what are teams going to be looking at free agency, all those things. Uh, but from a uh, micro standpoint with the scouting, when you are in the college world, you are almost always looking at players in a two to three year. What do I project this player to be? He is this now. I think he's going to get to this level, whether it's uh, two notches up, three notches up, whatever it is, if he's a finished product. Um, and on the pro world, for the most part, you are evaluating finished products. There's always going to be development. Of course, there's always going to be players that have good years, up years, down years, but you are in the pro world, you are evaluating the player for what they're putting on film every week in the college. Again, you get a projected a little bit more um, scheme specific. How would they look in your system? Again, you're maybe talking 19, 20 year old athletes. Hey, what's this guy going to look like when he's 24 and can focus on football all the time? Um, and that's probably the biggest difference. Um, just that uh, projection versus finished product idea. From a data standpoint, let's let's talk the college side first. How do you bring data into the equation, whether it's traditional stats, measurements, 
other metrics a team might have? How do you uh, combine that with your scouting eye in the process? Yeah, it is. Um, again, everybody's going to do it a little bit different. Every team does a little bit different. I always used to say it's just a part of the, another piece of the puzzle that you have. And again, the more data we have now, now uh, in today's day and age, uh, it just gives you more pieces to maybe put the puzzle together. The, you know, like you said, the first thing is always um, there is a fairly standard, um, this is what an NFL player looks like at this position. You start getting outside of the fat part of your bell curve Um those are your outliers, both on the top end, the players that are really rare trait wise. And then again, the, there's NFL players again, Jason Kelsey, who is on the underside of um, how has he managed to make it as long as he has undersized. Um, well, it's the, of course, it's the athleticism, but what, what other traits outside of the, you know, verified measurements, the verified data that you have, um, that has allowed those players to make it. And um, again, from the pro and college side, the pro side, again, there's a pretty, you have a pretty good idea of what a pro player looks like college-wise. Again, that starts to help you, um, hey, how good can this player be if he's two inches short, not as long as he needs to be, he's underweight. Um, again, you have to start being really special in other areas. So that that data that you start gleaning through just gives you a better and better idea of, hey, this guy, um, he he is really rare here, um, or he's um, a little bit a uh, little bit short here, and just helps you again find the uh, other questions that you need to ask to get your final answer. And has the the use of data how has that changed over you know the last ten years or so? Obviously, in general, data has exploded in sports, um, but specifically to the scouting side, either college or pro. How has the availability, the accessibility, the use of that evolved over the last decade or so? Yeah, it, the biggest thing is it probably helps you answer questions more quickly. It allows you to, and then ultimately answer more questions. I, got, I remember back in um, the, the 2016 draft, I had just come in and we were, um, if there was a question about a player, missed tackles, tackles for loss, uh, certain situations, you were, you were uh, cutting probably 12, 13 games of tape. Um, to try to you know highlight those plays, pull them into a specific cutoff. That way, the GM, the director, the owner, whoever it may, may be, be able to can look at that film and you know get that answer. Now, um, you probably have two or three different data sources that are trusted. Um, again, maybe the data was there in 2016. It's now a more and more trusted um, source linked with the film where you can click a few buttons and in 20 minutes you have that cut up of you know exactly what specific situation down and distance uh again scheme versus a player's level you you can just cut it so much quicker now to where you can um quickly go through and maybe feel like you have a little bit better answer and so it's uh for i would say for the lower level the scouting assistants of the world um you uh have a little bit easier time you don't have to burn as much film to uh to go through and find some of that stuff it's uh again the data source is out there you just click a few buttons to find what you need yes yeah, so you're saying you don't have to watch this whole season of games to find these whatever dozen two dozen of a certain kind of play or situation that you're looking for you use the data to get there so basically just making you more efficient in the whole process right 
Exactly. Efficiency is, uh, again, allows you to do a lot of other projects and uh, maybe just watch a little bit more of your own film instead of doing some of that work for the higher levels. Specifically on the college side, what other kind of information or data can you get out of these, you know, senior bowl, combine, pro days, these type of things that are going to happen between basically now and the draft? Uh, what, what do you get out of that? Whether it's, you know, more personal type of things, whether it's data related, what kind of info do you gather in that process? Yeah, from the data side, again, this is for some players, it may be the first time you get a verified measurement. Again, exactly how long is he, exactly how tall um, and what his weight is. Again, that's one of the biggest things that scouts want to see through the process is what uh, for some guys, what have their what has their weight done? Um, one of the really kind of unique challenges for uh, college scouts is you you may have a really good player that is used very scheme specifically in college where the hashes are wider. Um, again, you think about the nickel overhang big safety player that is going to play uh, in the overhang to the field. That's going to be a spot and. The college team is good with him being 210 pounds, but that role may not exist for half the NFL teams. And all of a sudden you see his number, his weight number jump from 210 to 225. And it's again, the college has been telling you, yeah, he, he could get up to 225, 230. All of a sudden he jumps up and it's like, okay, the, the trend is in the right direction. Same thing with pass rushers, um, guys that again, they're playing 60 snaps a game on the college level as a, rush outside linebacker defensive end at 200 and 215 220 pounds just because they may have uh an average um nutrition plan at this school depending on the size and all of a sudden they get to say the east west shrine game and they're they weigh in at 235 or 240 and their weight is continuing in the right direction it's like hey this guy can maintain this guy can play at 240, 245, the frame looks good, his body's supporting it. Um, so again, he's he, tracking some of that stuff where every co every college team pro liaison strength coach is going to tell you that yeah, this guy's going to be able to do it. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And until the guy actually steps on the scale multiple times and shows the right trend line, um, it's just something that you're having to trust a source instead of trusting the, trusting the data. And no, the we'll just call it the skill positions. I know a lot of people hate that term, but we'll, we'll use that as shorthand for your, your quarterbacks, running backs, receivers, et cetera. Uh, they have the traditional stats that are you know relatively easy to find. Uh, you know, you get some sense of of what they've done at least from that. Uh, other positions, your linemen and such, are much more difficult uh, to quantify. So, does data, whether it's those stats, whether it's metrics, whether it's measurements. Does it help more with certain positions than others as you're trying to figure out how guys will, you know, fit in from college to the pros or moving between teams or certain positions where you're looking for different things compared to others? Yeah, again, each each scheme is always going to have little things that you're that, that may separate players um, a little bit. And every team has maybe a little bit formula for some of their different analytical studies that are going to, again, separate things out a pass rush rate a protection rate um all going to depend on again where is a player lined up pre-snap um again taking away pressures linebackers um again some teams will start taking out last last two minutes of each half if you get up by a certain number of points just because again 
that changes the way an offense or defense is going to call a game. So um, there's certain things that, yeah, they're certainly going to start pulling those pieces of data out. Um, and I would say it's it's certainly one of those things where specific players, um, you're going to dig more into the numbers. Your, your top players, um, you're going to be able to put on the film and, you know, see that, hey, yeah, he's he's special, he's good. The data is, is now maybe just going to tell you, um, you know, is he, do I like him slightly more than this or slightly less than this? Maybe it's a historical comparison. Um, it's, again, some of those outliers where you really lean on that data more because, um, again, this this guy, again, he's undersized, He but he is quick. You start thinking about some of the uh, separation data we have now where this guy is always open. He's always two-plus yards away from the nearest defender. Again, you start pulling up those um, cut-ups with your different film, and it's like, yeah, this guy always is pulling away, or it's like, oh, they just always zoned him. He's always going to be open because he's always in zone. And um, so that's where some of that data is going to, uh, again, always lead you back to the film. Uh, but again, you you want some of that stuff, and all of a sudden it's a really short cut up. It's like, man, this you know. So he doesn't have any snaps of film that say that he's going to be able to overcome this. Again, it just leads you to try to answer that question in a different way, and just leads you ultimately back to more more and more film um, that you can try to go find stuff. Yeah, and it's always nice when the there is data that can quantify something that you talk about. You know, you talked about. Scouts always say this guy is always open, and now we have a way to quantify that in in certain capacities, which is which is always nice. Um, if if you're talking to an analyst type, someone you know that you're working with, uh, what kind of advice do you give to? I'm just calling the data types, the analyst types, as opposed to someone coming from the scouting angle. What kind of advice do you give those analysts as they try to communicate and work better with the scouting side? Yeah, the more football you can understand. Um, the better off you'll be. The more you'll understand what the data is trying to say, what questions coaches, scouts, uh, directors are trying to answer with the data. Uh, again, I, I, I go back to um, you know 2016 when um, some of the major data um, outlets were really getting into it, and the, again they they would try to quantify something with data that just was not it wasn't right and again it's from a from a data standpoint from a somebody that doesn't understand football what a scheme is trying to do what a player is trying to do um it seems right but again you the more football you understand the more you'll be able to answer what what question they are they actually trying to answer so um but at the same time if you're a data person you're a data person a scout's a scout a coach is a coach understand where you're coming from. Hey, this is what the data says. I acknowledge that, yeah, this may be not what they're not trying to trying to do to them uh, from a scheme or coaching, scouting side of it. But uh, um, again, kind of marrying those two things that uh, will really allow you to have a really good big picture of, of everything going on. And kind of the opposite question almost, what do you suggest to scouts who may, maybe they're coming from a pure football side and now they have opportunities as more and more data is available to use that in some kind of way or to speak to analysts and try to you know make everybody better at their job what do you say to that scouting side trying to work better with data and people who work on the data side more 
Yeah. Um, I mean, there, it all has its place. Every Again, there's old school scouts where it's say it's just about the film. Yes, it's about the film. Let the data drive you back to the film to, again, help you answer your questions. Um, be open to, you know, asking the questions that maybe, yeah, again, 10 years ago, you couldn't get the answer. Five years ago, maybe you didn't trust the answer. Well, again, let it drive you back to that spot to where um, there's all these different puzzle pieces out there. And um, again, nobody, nobody has the box to look at the picture. You're just trying to put the, put the puzzle, you know, giant jigsaw puzzle together based on all the different pieces you have. Use every piece of information you have through the process to help you when you walk away, every scout sitting there on draft day, if you have any questions unanswered, you didn't finish your job. And so again, all these, all these pieces, data, film, character, background, weight room, academics, everything has to be answered. Use every resource you have out there. It's a big puzzle that we're it all trying to figure puzzle. out, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I want to ask about your current role with Right Step Advising. As you said, you know, you will help people with just about anything related to football. Um, Specifically on the agent side, how do you see agents, how do you advise agents to use data? How to combine that with the things that they're already doing? How does it help them in that process? It's kind of a hidden part of the football world a little bit. How does how do the numbers and, and such come into play on that agent side? Yeah. Um, two things, you know, that really come to mind. I, I, on the on the pro side, the all the data we have access to again helps your comparisons. When you start talking future contract negotiations and where is this player slotted? Who's going to like this player? Um, all that data you have is going to help you, again, just glean through that information. And in my opinion, hopefully make negotiating a little bit easier. Understand, again, narrowing in on those teams that you really think have a have a home for. On the college side, um, again, there is... There is data out there for um, 2024, 2025, 2026 prospects at this point that are going to help agents start to, um, you know, focus in on some of those maybe top guys or, again, go back to what does an NFL player look like? Guys that are 5'10 or 180 pounds that are lighting up the stat world. Again, not a ton of those guys in the NFL, but the raw developmental 6'2", 240-pound, really long linebacker that just has been sitting there behind, um, you know, whoever, super productive player at any school. Again, that that looks like an NFL player. You watch him run, it looks like an NFL player. All the data out there is going to help you just kind of identify those guys and uh, maybe maybe uncover some of those guys that, hey, all they need is the opportunity. Once the senior leaves in front of them, they'll be players, and you can be a little bit out in front of maybe some of your competition if you uh, if you kind of focus in on those things. And with the NIL changes, the transfer portal, and the, the college game has just been transformed so much in the last just couple of years. How does all that come into play from a, a, a number standpoint? How do you see people using things differently in order to get different places, do different things in that this brave new world or whatever of the college landscape yeah i mean the the biggest offset now is they have a dollar valuation um very specific dollar valuation to try to match um you know, you're talking a fourth fifth to highly sought after undrafted free agent where there's still a question out there you've got a you've got a dollar dollar valuation again those guys are looking at at the data where hey there's 
I'm probably the 23rd corner on the board. And if I come back another year, maybe there's this number. Again, I fit in this part of the curve. Um, uh, my stats only show that I'm this level of player. Again, all that information, again, is just going to help them, uh, in my opinion, help them make the best decision available for them. Um, again, there's every, every situation different for players going to the NFL, uh, developing in the NFL, going back to college, developing in college. Um, and again, for some of these players getting paid when they can get paid because the NFL is a... Um, tough world to make it in and though no football is guaranteed i tell guys all the time college is slightly more guaranteed because um it may be somewhere you've been at and um you can be you can be a very good college football player and not ever you know see the field in the nfl we've talked about this reference to kind of a couple times but i'm curious if you have an example of a time when your eye test maybe said this guy is great but the numbers contradicted that or you didn't see something with the eyes and the numbers like hey maybe take a bit, another look because it looks like something's popping here uh, how do you reconcile those two things uh, as a scout when initially at least and again we're speaking very broadly the eye test says one thing and the numbers suggest something else yeah certainly i mean the the number one thing is go back and burn more film um go back multiple years try to try to go back and um, find, you know, remember, go through your practice notes from when you were out there at fall camp or Tuesday, Wednesday practice and think about, again, some of those situations. Um, I always tried to reconcile it with the character side of it. Again, how did the strength coach, how did the uh, academic side, how did the coaches talk about it and um, the player, does it make sense? Do you does one lead to another again, or is it, is, is it more conflicting information where you have to, again, all right, I've got to go find, turn over another stone. I got to call another coach. I've got to call another source to try to find out why, why does this not make sense? Um, you, it's often the case with a smaller school athletes where you get your, your biggest discrepancies, um, where again, the data says this player should be outstanding, but just for whatever reason, you looked at it, them again, I test, um, and there was a certain, uh, I, I, I can, I think I can go ahead and say it. There was a Western Kentucky quarterback, uh, in the recent drafts who I test told me that I did not think that this player was going to be, uh, uh, better than a backup quarterback. And if, obviously he got drafted in a good spot. He did some good things, you know, in starting. But again, his numbers, uh, you can't argue with the numbers. He was unbelievable, high numbers. Again, you start looking at what that offensive system has done over the years. That's a very, very quarterback-friendly offense and very offensive-friendly offense. Again, not to hold that against the player, but it provides context to the overall thing. Uh, on the on the big stage, again, you start thinking about players that have, um, you know, uh, I go back and the the Atlanta Falcons drafted Russell Gage, I believe, a fifth or sixth round player, highly sought after recruit that was behind a bunch of first and second round NFL receivers was a really good special teams player at LSU and uh, just continued to progress and develop. And um, again, the eye test told you there should be something about this player. The character said there should be something about this player that you like. Obviously, on-field on field film 
Uh, there just was not a ton of it. Um, but again, did some things in practice when maybe some of those other guys were, um, you know, getting plays off where it's like, hey, yeah, this guy, we can pull the card and feel really good about it, even though um, on, you know, his game footage, maybe not tell, wouldn't tell you that it's it's going to work out that way. Ask a couple questions just about this upcoming draft. I know we're, we're a couple of months away, but never too early, of course, to talk about it. The Bears have a number one pick. They have a quarterback in Justin Fields that looks like he could be the guy. So they have a decision to make there. But just uh, your general thoughts on what do you think the Bears, what's their thought process? What might they be thinking as they get ready for this draft? Yeah, I mean, if I'm the Bears, I am listening to every offer, regardless of whether it is for the draft pick or for the quarterback. I had the privilege of uh, scouting Justin for a couple years. Um, I really liked Justin. I had a big grade on Justin. Um, I think he can be a successful NFL quarterback. But again, there's, uh, I don't know if there is a player in the NFL that it would be um, a player that I wouldn't be willing to listen to. There's a price tag for everybody, right? And if, if somebody just absolutely blows down the door, either for Justin or for that number one pick. Again, I think you have to be willing to listen. It's about what's best for your organization, for your team. Um, and again, you want to do right by Justin. You want to do right by the team, the fan base, all those things. But um, if, again, whatever offer comes, you're doing your homework on, you know, in my opinion, probably the top two guys at quarterback. And then, again, who's who's the player that maybe one or two players, a couple of spots down that you're targeting, um, and again, you're you're looking at uh, up and down those pro rosters where, hey, if they want to deal maybe some of those good pro players, um, hey, be willing to listen and, uh, you know, entertain any offer. Anybody that you would suggest, you know, people keep an eye on that, whether it's a, a later pick or a later first round pick or, or someone that's uh, jumped off the page, but is not thought of as a, you know, top 5, 10, 15 talent, someone that you just suggest keeping an eye on coming up? Yeah. Um, I mean, I went through and this was a really fun one because, again, you start thinking about the players that over the last couple of years, again, COVID giving all these guys extra years um, where uh, there's many guys in this draft that I have done a lot of work on. Um, some of the guys that Dwan Jones from Ohio State has continued to impress me. He had a great all-star week. It is one of the biggest human beings that I've ever seen. Um, again, I, I think about a guy like Makai Becton. That's a massive human being. That's Dewan Jones. And he, um, he has continued to answer some of the questions that I would have had if he came out early, uh, maybe a year ago. His condition looks to be really top-notch. He has worked on the technique not just relied on being, again, a massive human being that gets, gets by on being massive. Um, there's two tailbacks that I love. Uh, Muhammad Ibrahim out at Minnesota, again, one of the most fun running backs that I have done in the last number of years. And then Chris Rodriguez out of Kentucky, again, just tough, hard-nosed, downhill guys. I think they're, they're great guys to – they're plug-and-play. You want them on your roster. Um, again, you know what they are. They're not going to be – um, Saquon Barkley, you're not looking for that kind of explosion. But again, you're going to hand this guy the ball 15, 20 times a game. You know exactly what you're getting. Uh, and then a couple under radar guys, BJ Thompson out of Stephen F. Austin. He had a really, really good SFA game. Again, you start talking about one of those guys that has to answer the weight questions. Um, a program like SFA 
not much in nutrition plan was always going to be battling to keep the weight on obviously a Baylor transfer has some stuff that he's worked through in his past but you know I think he weighed in close to 240 at the east west which was up a good significant margin from what he played at best competition continuing to run by people um, and then a kid from Ball State, again, a school that I had in the Midwest, Ball State, Johannes Tyler, um, a big, long 6'3", 210-pound receiver that uh, I think is going to run better than everybody expects him to, catches the ball. Um, when he had, uh, they had another receiver there last year that uh, it was a really good one-two punch. Johannes got a lot of extra attention this year, still produ- uh, still really productive for coach news off. And so those are, those are two guys and, you know, I just kind of have, have in my back pocket, just continuing to watch them, see where they end up going. It's, you know, those, those are guys that are really fun that, uh, that again, they look like NFL football players and I think they'll end up, you know, fitting in real nice somewhere. Yeah. I like it. Some good names for us to keep an eye on. I, I got to follow up on the running back thing only because this is kind of a, almost a cliche of, I'll just say analyst versus scout again, to speak broadly where you know, the analysts say running backs don't matter which is not entirely true. That's not what anybody says, but there is a probably a little more of kind of what you said, a plug and play mentality to that. And I think a lot of it's related more to dollars than anything else. Um, So I'm curious about how you approach running backs, because there is certainly that stance that it's not worth the pick maybe is a better way of saying it to take a high pick or pay him a ton of money. Uh, But at the same time, not every fourth round running back pans out obviously either. How do you kind of approach that running back position as things have evolved over the last, you know, especially I think five or 10 years? Yeah. I think like, like you said, the value is probably the biggest thing on that pick. Again, uh, my personal philosophy, take a first or second round running back every three or four years, because you don't ever want to pay him the big, big money that, you know, we've seen um, again, players like Zeke Elliott, obviously, very good player in his time. He's not the same Zeke that, you know, signed that contract. Obviously, Saquon Barkley is going to be a really interesting conversation this year. Um, and again, you look at Isaiah Pacheco. He was, what, a seventh-round draft pick that was productive. And um, again, if you're a pass-heavy offense, that's all you need. And um, so, yeah, to find to find that scheme fit, um, zone, power, downhill to find the combination hey we already have a small guy we need a big guy we already have a big guy let's find a small guy let's find just good versatile all-around backs we'll have two or three of them ride the hot hand that's probably a little bit of what kansas city was um and uh again match those guys up marry them up have them fit in your offense whether it's a pass catcher you know just a downhill grinder kind of do everything guy and uh and then just um you know find a way to to keep yourself from uh, overvaluing a guy in your offense because it's a it's a deep position just about every year there are always guys that end up popping um getting cut down at the last down to 53 that uh that have value and um guys that are you know one or two years and then and then it's like where did they go um so you gotta get i would say you just have to make sure you uh maintain your uh conviction on where you value the player <laughs> yeah a lot, of, a lot of tough decisions and such to make always all right let's uh finish things up with our playing favorites here where we rip through a number of your favorites so tell me what your favorite number is and why number two uh it was my college number so i uh, just always got to roll with that one it's a it's a nice number single digit gotta love it favorite player of yours as a kid 
I was a Brett Favre guy growing up. Um, again, you're talking three MVPs there in the mid '90s when I, you know, started getting to uh, pick my own. Um, it was I, I lived close to Denver, and that was the Denver Green Bay rivalry that was good during those middle years of, uh, of the '90s. And uh, but I was a Brett Favre guy, tough as they come, not afraid to throw it around, throw his body around. So I'm Brett Favre always. Do you have any favorite? I don't know, call it a nerdy thing you keep track of, whether, you know, spreadsheets or something you keep for fun or whatever it might be, something like that. Man, I, I love a good spreadsheet. Nothing that, nothing crazy. Again, I, I keep, I keep a lot of stuff in spreadsheets. I uh, am in the process of starting to put, I'm, I'm a baseball card collector. So I'm starting to put some of that stuff in from, you know, all the stuff over the years, but, uh, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say anything real crazy there. All right, find something in your kids' lives and make a spreadsheet out of it. And yeah, exactly. Someone will thank you maybe someday or just think you're a nerd. Something like that. you have a favorite how-did-I-get-here moment? Meaning one of those moments where you're just kind of like, wow, this is a pretty wild, cool, weird situation I've gotten into professionally, but you're able to kind of appreciate it for, for all the quirkiness that it is. Yeah, uh, two things come to mind. Again, I was I got to stand on the field pregame of the Super Bowl when we got to play the Patriots. Um, again, you start snapping a photo of yourself at midfield, four yards, um, you know, from the field. I mean, that's kind of like again, how did I, how did I from little old Burlington, Colorado, get here? Um, and then the other one was shortly after that. Um, there was a uh, future, I would consider him a future Hall of Fame player, that unfortunately his time had come to an end, and I had to be the one to call him, let him know that the coach and GM needed to talk to him, and he needed to bring his iPad playbook in. So to do that to somebody that you know is going to be in Canton, um, it's kind of one of those head scratchers where it's like, wow, this, uh, this, this, this is a business. Um, and the fact that I was the one that made the call is just, you know, kind of odd all right roderick david founder of right step advising and former falcon scout we appreciate all the insight thanks for joining us here on expected value absolutely thanks for having me guys Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks to Roderick David for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Roderick David. Check out Right Step Advising at rsafootball.com. You can find both those things, among others, in our show notes. I'm joined now by producer Sergio De La Esprilla. Sergio, before we get into the talk with Roderick, Super Bowl was yesterday. Our Dolphins were not in it, but uh, what did uh, anything jump out at you particularly enjoyed from the Super Bowl? Are our Dolphins ever in it? Next year, <laughs> next year they're going to be in it. Uh, just like, like we the say last this every year, just like you know, years and whatever. Yeah. Hey, it's the, it was the 50th anniversary of 1972, right. so no one can ever take that away from us. That's right. Um, no, I, I liked I liked the game overall. That was a really fun game to watch. Um, things kind of you know took off at the beginning, and then uh, I think Patrick Mahomes got some horse tranquilizers or something because <laughs> I have no idea how that man was able to run so quickly and he was very clearly grimacing after every uh extraneous effort he put on that ankle so i I just think that's like um you know another feather in the potential goat conversation that we may be having in about 15 years or so um and i thought at the end you know the 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 holding penalty i think that's something that roderick really mentioned right at the beginning where you know you got to call things if you're going to be calling these 
uh, super minute false starts or, you know, in high leverage situations, the most high leverage of all situations in the NFL, um, then you got to call it. I personally, I didn't think there was enough for a holding, but I also understand if, if you do believe that, then yeah, you got to call it. So I, I like his mentality there, but overall I thought it was a great game. Um, and it, it was nice to see quite clearly the two best teams in each conference go at it, which we don't usually get. And it gave us, you know, a 38, 35 thriller that really had a, a, a place in the archives of NFL history. If Mahomes does go on to become as great as we all think he will. Yep. And I think from kind of a, I don't know, whatever analytics perspective, really more of game management, the fact that the Eagles, like you knew they were going to go for it on fourth down and they knew they were going to go for it on fourth down. You saw multiple times it's third and seven or whatever, and they could run a, relatively short yardage running play because they know if they only get three or four yards, they're still going to go for it on fourth and three. Uh, and it, I, I think it just changed kind of the tenor of the game and the approach. Usually you get a third down stop and you're so excited from a defensive standpoint or a fan standpoint. And it's, it's not quite the same. Like your just mentality has got to be different of stopping them on four downs is a normal thing. I'm excited to see where that goes. Cause I mean, fourth down is just high leverage and high entertainment. Uh, and I, but it's also smart to go for it a lot of the time. And I think that's just going to keep evolving. You know, they're not the only team that plays this way, but I think more and more teams are going to get more aggressive. And this was kind of a nice little microcosm uh, of what I think we're just going to see more of as, as people get a little more accustomed and comfortable looking at those numbers and making decisions. Yeah. And, and it was funny because at halftime um, I remember I saw uh, the ringers, Ben Solak, who uses our site and media partner and stuff. So a little plug there, but, he tweeted a screenshot of the first half statistics. And when you looked at third and fourth down conversions, he circled it. And the Eagles were like three of four on third downs and two of two on fourth. Whereas the Chiefs were over three on third and didn't even attempt a fourth down conversion where there were some opportunities where they probably right. could have gone for it instead of kicking and right. stuff Kicked like that. Kicked a field so, goal, missed the field goal. Could have, was justifiable to go for it. Right. On a stats perspective too, I think those two fourth quarter touchdowns by the Chiefs, they were the exact same play, just run on opposite sides of the field with different players. So that first one where Kadarius Tony kind of runs into motion um, as a Florida fan and as someone who saw Kadarius <laughs> Tony on his field, he went into motion and I went, oh, they're going to run the Dan Mullen goal line play. And that's exactly what they did. They just he's so fast. No one can stop him there. So it's, I'm interested to see how teams approach calling multiple plays in same similar situations as kind of like a 3D mind game with the defense. Because you would think that the defense is kind of prepared for that situation where maybe the defense is zigging while people zag and they and that's exactly what happened where um, instead of kind of focusing over on those motion players, um, they use that disguise in order to send a blitz. And then you had I forgot the other Chiefs players scored the second one, but on the opposite Scott side Moore. of the field, Scott Moore, the exact same play and he just walked into the end zone. Mm -hmm. So statistically, I'm interested to see how teams can look at the the continuous running of the same play and the effectiveness of that same play being run. And especially in high leverage situations, like the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. Is that what you're going to bust out a play from week one or exactly what are you going to do on there? tape or you ran the earlier in the game or yeah, I think there's a lot to do with motion too. You know, we've seen some teams be really successful. Uh, it just gives you information. We saw that mention on that first chiefs touchdown. Kelsey goes in motion to get a different matchup. It works out well. So it's a, a valuable thing I think we'll see a lot more of. Um, all right. What else uh, kind of jumped out at you from the conversation we had talking with Roderick? Well, sticking with, obviously sticking with the NFL, but 
sticking with quarterbacks, I liked how we got a scout's perspective on this upcoming what's what's bound to dominate the draft discussion in the next six to eight weeks. Right. Uh, and, and it's do the Bears trade the number one overall pick um, to build around Justin Fields or do they just take someone like a Bryce Young or maybe a CJ Stroud and kind of try to get a younger quarterback with two extra years of rookie, you know, flexibility and the cap to build their team. I think it's it's it was a big kind of stamp of approval for Justin Fields that we had an NFL scout from a team that wasn't associated with the with the Bears, someone who hasn't worked in that organization before and was kind of like, no, I mean, I scouted him. I liked him. Um, and and it really shows that there's a lot more to building a team than just the spreadsheet, right, where you can get under the cap and you can you have the cap to add other assets. But what good is that if you have a player that, you know, doesn't gel well and this is just quarterbacks in this example mm-hmm. but a, a quarterback that doesn't gel well with the city or a quarterback that doesn't you know maybe necessarily work well with other aspects of the team and we saw how the bears kind of built that offense around justin fields this past season right Eventually, while it didn't yeah. result in many wins it was a significant improvement from what they had in the seasons prior so i really liked that and i also um i liked how he he talked about the NIL changes and how the, the the difference with college players now versus when he was um, scouting with the Falcons, um, you know, around the time where they were in the Super Bowl and such, those things weren't, you know, a factor, at least above the table, you know, right. those, those <laughs> as someone who loves college football, I can't, what? I mean, I can't, I can't lie to the audience, but you know, at least now there's this legitimate, like, is it worth, is the player worth more, at the collegiate level than they're worth at the NFL. Is it worth, is it worth it for a player to make X amount of dollars coming back as a fifth year or sixth year senior versus maybe going undrafted and being on the practice squad or being a late round pick and getting cut? You never know. So I like seeing those differences and how he, you know, as a scout would have approached that and such. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, totally agree. And coming off Super Bowl, we have one quarterback on his rookie deal, one quarterback on his max deal. So to the Justin Fields point, there are different ways to do it. You just got to figure out uh, what it is. Uh, one thing that struck me is I was like asking from the, again, scouting perspective, what could, does an analyst need to know to communicate better and, and things like that? And he talked about, uh, you know, learn more football. And something I always preach to people in that analyst role, it came into play a lot in my researcher role at ESPN is it's the same thing. It's speak the language. Um, I don't mean that literally, but it's just it's just learning terminology. You know, there was one instance where researcher was talking. I think it was to Teddy Bruschi, and just said something about well, the Mike linebacker was the mic was over here, something like that. And and just that he said the mic, like Teddy kind of perked up. He's like, oh, you like know what that's called? You know, this that's not an advanced stat. That is not a super advanced thing in the football world, but it perked him up and gave him a little bit more respect. So sometimes it's simple like that. Um, a lot of times it's just learning, like, how do they think and what do they need and how you can help them? Because that's often the best way to work together. And I have an example of 2014 World Cup working with Roberto Martinez. And it was an Italy game. And he was asking, you know, just listening to him talk during the first half about Pirlo's not, you know, moving Italy forward, whatever. And so he asked, like, how many passes Pirlo completed? So I gave him the number, and then I also gave him how many of those were forward. It was a very low percentage relatively, and which just pointed to the fact that exactly what he was saying. He, he was not getting Italy into any sort of transition or moving into the attack. And 
he liked that and it opened the door. Suddenly he would, he would ask me for like that note on like whoever the key central midfielder was for almost every team. Um, it's just a simple way of like listening to what somebody says, what, what are they trying to do? How are they trying to do their job and how as an analyst or a researcher or a numbers person, you can support them and make them better, which just builds collaboration and builds trust and opens a lot of doors for you. Yeah, that's the that's the central marriage between stats and the people who communicate the statistics and the story of the of the game. I'll I'll say this because uh, th- this man really Im- impacted my life more than I thought it would. But uh, Barry Sachs, if you watched ESPN at any point on Sunday, mm-hmm. Barry Sachs was um, a producer at ESPN for a long time. I don't know if you crossed paths with him, Paul, but I did a little bit. He yeah. was he was my professor at Quinnipiac University. Uh-huh. So wow. and he was always super kind to me. He would always mm-hmm. reach out. Unfortunately, he passed away this weekend. He suffered yeah. a massive heart attack on Friday, but it was very nice to see everyone kind of um, share their stories. And, and my personal story, if you'll indulge me, is mm-hmm. he always said to me, what is the story and why does it matter? <laughs> like That was always his central yep. purpose when producing a show. I've What's the story? That. Why does it matter? And he always get rid of, get rid of everything else. We need to give the audience this. And mm-hmm. when you talk about that specific example, Roberto Martinez was asking, what's the story and why does it matter? Uh, It's this always marriage between statistics and the quote unquote, um, you know, the the, the people who quote unquote are involved in the game or whatever. Coaches, players, analysts. Exactly. There's this narrative of stats people and and former players or coaches and such don't really get along. But I feel like when we can find that middle ground of what the story is and we can use those statistics to be able to tell the story in a better way. That to me is the perfect use of analytics. It's the perfect use of storytelling with something as factual and specific as analytics in an overarching theme like a story of a game is. And um, that's something that Barry always really emphasized with me and really emphasized with our classes. And so um, very organic way. I didn't even you know think of how much Barry has kind of impacted me personally and countless others as well. So um, my little uh, you know nugget for Barry on this Monday, February 13th, we're recording. Now, Barry's a, I mean, he was at ESPN for over 30 years and impacted people from PAs to researchers to talent to, you know, people higher up and just one of a, an ESPN lifer in a lot of ways that so many people respected. I didn't work with him a ton, but a little bit on, I think it was Euros in like 08, Confed Cup in 09. And yeah, what's the story? It was something I heard from him more than once. And he always was the person who, if he didn't know a sport, he would dive into it. He told us a story where he was covering NASCAR for some reason, and he wasn't a big race, you know, racing person. But he said that the six weeks leading up to when he was starting on that show, he consumed racing as if it was his life. And so it's that dedication of, you know, if you want to break into football and you like football, learn football. You know, it's the stuff that Roderick was saying. Everything ties into it, you know, storytelling and and um, the amount of effort and, and, and work that you put into it all ties in together. So that's something that uh, Barry not only taught me, but countless others, and not just at ESPN, but all over with, you know, the work he did at Quinnipiac and teaching and such. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Sergio. And thanks again to Roderick David for joining us on the show. I have lots of other football-centric episodes in the archives, including former NFL GM Mike Tannenbaum, Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics, and Cynthia Freeland, data scientist at NFL Network. While you're there, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We always appreciate that. And you can follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports, T-R-U Media Sports. On behalf of producer Sergio De La Espria and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. 